Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario schools back open after the province and CUPE agreed to get back to contract talks. What are the implications of Ontario's use of the notwithstanding clause? Premier Doug Ford backtracking on his Greenbelt promise. We have an update on the go bus strike. Doug Ford won't have to testify at the Emergencies Act inquiry and learn how to improve your financial literacy. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario schools, good news, reopened again today for in-person learning after the Ford government said it would repeal Bill 28 and CUPE said, all right, we'll return to work. Uh, It was certainly a whirlwind day yesterday. We're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if CUPE agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike. As a gesture of good faith to this announcement, QPOSPCU will be collapsing our protest sites. We hope that this gesture is met with the same good faith by this government in a new proposal at the bargaining table as soon as possible. We also have new developments in this story this morning as Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce will be providing an update in just over an hour's time. Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, will be following it and he joins us live here on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hello, Colin. Do we have you? Hey, g- hey, hey good morning. Are. Yeah, sorry about that. That's I was okay. uh, just looking up the news release from Premier Doug Ford right now. Well, he's he's on at nine with Stephen Lecher. Have you heard anything on what this could possibly be? Well, no, I mean, you know, we want to get an update from the premier in terms of, you know, at what point is he actually going to be pulling back this legislation um, and, and, and what his next steps are. I mean, there still are a lot of questions for the Ford government, right? Especially when you consider the fact that now that they're back at the bargaining table, they are going right back to square one. Uh, and it's back to the same, you know, far apart positions that they were coming into this in the first place. Remember, you know, on Thursday, the mediator had decided these two sides are too far apart. There's nothing that he could do to bring them together. And so he had dismissed both the sides uh, as well. And so today, Uh, You know, as they start their negotiations again, where do they start? What is their starting point? Are they still really far apart and are they willing to move? That's kind of what we want to find out from the Ford government and any other surprises. I mean, this whole week has been full of Easter eggs (laughs) and we've we collectively have been hunting for them. So um, let's see what the premier has to say. Of interest as well. And you were tweeting about this yesterday. If contract talks break down again, QP says we'll be back to square one here. Right. When the legislation is repealed next Monday, it, it puts the, uh, the union back into the uh, legal strike position that it's been in before. So in effect, all they would have to do is give the government five days notice that they would go on strike again. Now, whether they're willing to do this is another question entirely. We asked Laura Walton yesterday, who's the head of the uh, the, the, the local union representing the 55,000 education workers, and she said, listen, our leverage over this bargaining process still stands, that they could still you know, withdraw their services or even hold a work to rule if they want to. They know that it worked once before, and it could work once again, and The question is, what leverage does the Ford government have over the negotiations? That we don't know.
Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce will be providing an update on education union negotiations at 9 this morning. You'll be able to hear it live here on 900 CHML. We're in conversation with Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News here on Good Morning Hamilton. We had, or we were preparing at least at one point yesterday to hear from a number of union officials, and we ultimately did, but that message would have been very different if we did not hear from the Premier in rescinding or repealing Bill 28, or at least making that pledge. It's clear that other unions were ready to walk off the job in a show of solidarity. What did you hear about that? Yeah, I mean, that was perhaps what really convinced the premier to turn the ship around. So on Sunday, uh, a lot of the unions started gathering at a hotel in downtown Toronto. And they started um, having these discussions about what to do. How can they collectively escalate in order to get the premier to back down? And, And to turn the temperature up, they were planning a mass protest outside the Ontario legislature this coming Saturday. But next Monday, they were planning a general strike, multiple unions, multiple sectors, all walking off the job to hold a political protest in order to get the premier to back down. It was perhaps staring down that threat, that reality that convinced the premier and the government that they needed to, um, you know, turn the temperature down first, which is what they did yesterday, which is why the union said, you know, fine, we're not going to go ahead with what we were going to go ahead with. But one of the unions uh, representing some public sector employees was very clear that they know now that they could shut this province down, in their words, at any time. And so it seems like they've all landed on a playbook here. And the playbook is, if you really don't like what the government is doing, if you feel like they've used the nuclear option, then all unions coalesce and perhaps hold a massive protest or general strike, and that could get the government to back down. It did it once with Premier Doug Ford. It could happen again with other premiers as well. Well, for the time being, we have avoided that scenario. Colin, really appreciate your insight this morning, and uh, we'll follow along as uh, this morning's news conference progresses. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Again, Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce will be holding a news conference at 9 this morning. You'll be able to hear it live here on 900 CHML as they will provide an update on education union negotiations. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ford government chewing up the green belt. We'll discuss that at 8.50 this morning. But I want to talk about the use of the notwithstanding clause. You've heard a lot about this over the last, well, number of days in relation to the government trying to prevent CUPE's education workers, those 55,000 Educational assistants, early childhood educators, librarians, custodians, other support staff from walking off the job. Well, despite that clause being enacted and Bill 28 being uh, brought into the legislature and and approved, ultimately passed, which is now, as we know from yesterday's news conference, going to be rescinded, the notwithstanding clause was still used by this government. And it has many labor experts and labor unions wondering what is next and and whether this sets a dangerous precedent. And so some are suggesting that its use has significant implications for other major education unions. As we know, uh, they are working without a contract, including teachers. So when the teachers say, you know what, enough is enough, we we, we can't get a deal done, we got to go on strike. 
Does the government automatically say, all right, we're using the notwithstanding clause, we're going to force you back? I mean, we, we'll, we'll just see the scenario that we saw or would potentially see when we had multiple union officials and leaders coming together to what we all expected was going to be announcement of a one-day province-wide job action. And these unions would have literally shut the province down, whether it was schools, uh, different agencies here or there, it would have been a tough day for many to get around the province or go to work or do whatever you have to do. But on the notwithstanding clause, there's almost a, a game of chicken happening here as well between the provincial government here in Ontario and the federal government. And before I get to that, we heard from Doug Ford yesterday saying that he always supported the rights of CUPE workers. I know that it has been controversial. I've always respected the right of workers to fair and free bargaining. But QP refused to take strike action off the table. You, you can't have your, key, your cake and eat it too. And the premier in that statement tried to do so. How can you always support the rights of workers and then quash those rights by using the notwithstanding clause? I mean... You can't have both. You can't have both. But he also said this when he was asked about using the notwithstanding clause and whether or not the Constitution needs to be changed. Here's what he had to say. If the Prime Minister wants to sit down and have a constitutional conversation with all the premiers, I can assure you all the premiers will be there to talk about uh, the constitutional changes if he wants to go down that road. I'd highly recommend not to. Well, interesting comments because, you know, Ford is right. Provincial governments do have the right to use the notwithstanding clause. It's been used in other cases. This is the first time it was used to legislate workers back on the job. And clearly, you know, it worked to a certain degree because they're back to work now. But it wasn't like the union didn't make their statement and their voice heard because they certainly did. But it is the way that the notwithstanding clause was used in this regard. And for the prime minister's part, it doesn't sound like he is willing at all, and I don't blame him, to reopen the Constitution. If uh, premiers across the country uh, want to avoid the kind of disruption that we've seen uh, in Ontario over these past few days, the answer is simple. Just don't use the notwithstanding clause proactively. Yeah, it would have to be a certain situation. Again, we've seen this in the past, but there's there's no way, there's no way, especially at this time, <laughs> that the prime minister is saying, you know what, let's uh, let's look at the constitution again. Let's reopen this massive document, which has so many layers to it, and dissect it and determine whether or not the provinces have the right to use this clause. Of course they do. That's not the issue, and I'm sure the premier knows this, that... Uh, you know, you can use this clause, but not in the instance that it did. Uh, we'll have a couple of minutes to discuss this with Dr. Stephanie Ross, the director of Asso and associate professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Uh, Dr. Ross, thanks for joining us this morning. We only have about uh, a couple of minutes here. Just your thoughts on the province using the notwithstanding clause in this legislation and in this scenario. Yeah, it was an incredible overreach, Rick. I, I, I think we can see that it was like touching the third rail of the labor movement. It, it created an existential crisis for unions because, you know, the notwithstanding clause basically said 
the government was saying, you know, we know that it's your constitutional right to bargain and to strike. We're going to we're going to interrupt that. We're going to impose a contract, and we're going to make it impossible for you to challenge this in court. And so, like, basically going to the heart of the role of unions in our society, like, that is what unions are there for, They're, that the freedom of association that we have in the Charter for unions means their their ability to bargain and to strike. They really don't have um, a, a basis if they can't do that. And so we saw, as a result, an unprecedented mobilization around QP because every union could see that the use of the notwithstanding clause to restrain labor rights could happen to them. Um, and, and that's why people across the country were paying attention as well. Um, and, and I think it was an incredible overreach, and um, I hope it uh, puts an end to contemplation of using notwithstanding clause in future labor negotiations, frankly. We've only got about a minute. Doug Ford almost daring the Prime Minister to reopen the Constitution to look at the use of the notwithstanding clause. I can't see that scenario happening. No, uh, I can't either. Um, uh, it's a far too complex of a matter. Um, but uh, I do think that, you know, people mobilizing on the streets can also get governments to reconsider its use. And I think that's another thing we saw this weekend, that, you know, in the face of, you know, significant public pressure, a government um, had to roll back uh, the use of the notwithstanding clause. Um, and and I think that, you know, if we can't negotiate, renegotiate it at the top, you know, we can renegotiate it through our, our civic action. Well, let's hope this situation uh, will give pause to this government and future governments in enacting uh, this clause. Stephanie, I wish we had more time, but we got to run. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. As Dr. Stephanie Ross, Director and Associate Professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is such a vast supply of unused greenfield land already within municipal settlement boundaries. And that vastly outweighs the amount of land that was used over the last 20 years in all in all of Ontario. That is the voice of Phil Pothin from Environmental Defense joining us here on 900 CHML as part of the Kelly Catrera Show weekdays from noon until 3. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. Uh, why are we playing this audio clip? Well, it all surrounds the Greenbelt. And as we found out on Friday afternoon, the Premier Doug Ford again backtracking on a promise he made years ago and will remove land from the environmentally protected Greenbelt area to build new homes. That is the plan. Um, is it going to work? Should this go ahead? What kind of impact is it going to have? Linda Lukasik is the Executive Director with Environment Hamilton and joins us now on GMH. Linda, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm okay. You know, I'm a little uh, a little surprised, but not surprised at the, the Premier flip-flopping like a fish out of water on the Greenbelt, because back in February mm-hmm. of 2018, he uh, told a private meeting of developers that he wanted to open up a big chunk of the green belt. There was a lot of backlash, and then he said unequivocally, quote, we won't touch the green belt. The people have spoken, my friends, yada, 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 the green belt's okay. And now uh, we're replacing the green belt with other sections of land and then building on it. What's your sense of what has gone on over the last little while here? This is crazy, and, and we can't allow it to happen. I mean, plain and simple. You know, I think about the Hamilton context, and 
not only do we have a provincial government that's forcing a boundary expansion on the city into rural lands, but it's going to include sizable chunks of the Greenbelt lands that are located in Hamilton. And I'm going to say, first and foremost, we don't we don't need this to happen. Uh, you know, you, you, you played that statement from Phil Poffin. Uh, people have looked at this. We have massive land supplies within existing urban areas around the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So you have to ask yourself, what is this all about and what is the rush in, in going in this direction when it's just simply not justifiable when we're talking about the housing crisis and housing affordability? At last count in 2019, I heard this in Phil's interview on this station, he said that there was 350 square kilometers, which is 35,000 hectares of green space, a lot of space within cities in Ontario to build. Uh, build up, build within, as opposed to building out. That's a lot of land. It's a huge amount of land. And think about Hamilton. You, we just developed a very detailed plan. The city listened to community. Community members made their voices heard, and the city made a decision on a firm boundary, submitted a plan to the province. That's a legal plan. It conforms with the provincial planning policies. So why is our provincial government coming back and trying to push Hamilton into such a starkly different direction that now threatens chunks of Greenbelt. It's crazy. And we all need to be asking, what is this really all about? What's going on here? I was diving into some of the research that other organizations had done on this. The Ontario Federation of Agriculture in a 2021 analysis claimed that the equivalent of five farms have been paid over each week in this province over the last two decades. That's a lot of farmland gone. What's the impact? The, the impact is is frightening. And I think I know that we all need to be thinking about this now within the context of climate emergency, climate crisis. And I know lots of people don't want to talk about this, especially this provincial government, because they don't seem to be taking it seriously. But I sure am listening to the conversations at COP27 happening um, overseas right now. And we're getting very dire warnings from this from the UN Secretary General. We need to be paying attention and think about the reality that Canada's best farmland, its its highest quality farmland is, guess what, it's right here in southern Ontario. So what are we going to do here? Are we going to change tracks and build a sustainable climate resilient future with, with food security? Or are we going to build housing, more sprawling housing on that prime farmland? I fear that this provincial government wants us to cut our nose off to spite our face. And more and more Ontarians are saying, no way, we can't allow this to happen. There's too much at stake here. We have 90 more seconds with Linda Lukasik, Executive Director in Environment Hamilton, as we talk about uh, chewing up the green belt. The province has launched a consultation period. It's going to be a 30-day consultation. There's going to be people like you and many others who are saying, hey, we've got to protect the green belt here. There's going to be others, namely developers, who say, all right, finally we get to develop on this land. At the end of the day, do you think the provincial government is actually going to listen? They're going to have to. Look, we're mobilizing, we're engaging, we're organizing across movements uh, we're going to make a whole lot of noise. We we are already. We will continue to do so. So, and I would also say the the land that they're proposing to add is undevelopable land. It's land that they had promised to add earlier. So they're not giving us anything new here in terms of, you know, their great claims that they're going to grow the green belt even bigger. Um, we can't lose that farmland that's in the green belt now, and people need to remember that and send that strong message to the Ford government. It's a good message to send, Linda. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Linda Lukasik, Executive Director, Environment Hamilton. We'll keep tabs on this Green Belt debate as we continue on here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, if you are a commuter and you rely on Go Bus to get to and from work, you know that you're out of luck. 
That's because the union that represents 2,200 GO Transit bus operators in this province is on strike. It launched at 12.01 a.m. yesterday, and the job action has forced many people to make alternate travel arrangements to and from their job. So what is up with the GO bus operator strike, and, and when could it possibly end? Rob Cormier is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1587 and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Rich. Thanks. Good morning. What led to the decision to go on strike? It's been a, a culmination of a few things. We've been at the table with Metrolinx for seven months. We are restricted under Legislation Bill 124, so we are restricted to 1% compensation. So wages has never been an issue on the table because of the legislation. Um, our number one item on day one was job security. And, and you know, that's a two-part thing. Job security, meaning the jobs we do today, um, making sure that they're ours tomorrow. Um, we're 2,200 people, but it's not just bus operators. We deal with a, a vast, a diverse group, actually. We have office workers. We have uh, plant maintenance people. We have fleet maintenance people. And, and in those jobs specifically, we see a lot of the jobs that our people no- normally do um, being done by contractors. So that was one of the that was a big ticket item that we wanted to hit in this round of negotiations. So will these negotiations, if you had your perfect um, deal, would it solidify those contracted out positions would be null and void, and you would just have the people that you have? No, not that's the that's the caveat to this, Rich. We we didn't say um, nullify all contracting out. We just said no new contracting out. So if one of our people leaves through retirement or whatever, whatever avenue that they decide to leave the company with, we just want to make sure that that job got posted and our people had the opportunity to it. So we were looking for no new contracting out. We didn't want to nullify what's already been done. Rob Cormier is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rob is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1587 as GO Bus operators are on strike in this province. Where do bargaining talks stand right now? Um, We reached out to the mediator yesterday, we meaning the union, um, saying we're ready to go back to the table, whatever. We we thought this was completely avoidable uh, and inconvenience our passengers. That's the last thing we want to do. I get the call. We'll be back at the table. When it comes to getting a deal done, where's your confidence level at right now? Um, <laughs> uh, I'll say it's it's lukewarm to say to be honest with you. Um, we met all weekend with the Metrolinx, and I was optimistic. And you know, my optimism went down quite a few notches. But I'm hoping. I don't know if they thought we weren't going to execute, but if uh, if they're serious about getting a deal, we're available and uh, we can make the, we can write the ship right away. I know you said money's not a factor in this because of Bill 124. For context, what does the average go bus operator earn uh, an hour or in a year? About seventy thousand a year. Uh, does. Uh, you know, it's it's probably not going to happen in terms of the province using the notwithstanding clause in this case, but we know that it was used for CUPE education workers. Did that send a chill down your spine being part of a union? You know, it was. I didn't. When Premier Ford legislated that against the, te- the education workers, I wouldn't say it sent a chill down my spine, but, you know, the threat of being legislated back is always there, right? And you know, if we operate under fear, then, you know, we're not operating optim- optimally. So, 
you know, we if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, you know, like I said, we've made ourselves available should uh, Metrolinx want to come back to the table, and we're ready to hammer out a deal. Are you expecting back-to-work legislation to be enacted? And if so, what, what's what's the usual timeline in that regard? Well, this is this is unprecedented, really. This is the first strike in Go Transit history, so I really don't have a timeline or what it would look like. It, it's always there, but seeing what transpired yesterday, I, I don't know if Doug Ford would be um, ready to jump on that again to legislate us back. I would imagine because this affects tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in terms of getting to and from work using GO buses, that um, you probably thought long and hard about going on strike. I mean, this this is really the last resort, the last, you know, the uh, bullet in the chamber, to use that analogy, that you have. You, you couldn't have put it any better, Rich. Um, you know, we worked all weekend because this was the last thing. Just to put it into perspective, we were in a legal strike position on October 1st. Uh, we had the no board report, and we were legally able to go out on strike on October 1st. On October 20th, Metrolinx gave us their latest proposal, and we thought our membership deserved the opportunity to see what had transpired over six months and put a vote to it. They voted 81% rejecting it. Uh, it was a very loud statement from our membership, and that's why we used the weekend to try to come to a resolution and you're right. We didn't want to. We didn't want to inconvenience our passengers. We didn't want to be uh, to set history as the first strike in Go Transit history. But um, you know, we wanted to be taken seriously as well. What's your message to those passengers who I'm sure are mad that you know this has happened? My message to those passengers are: this was avoidable. Um, I I truly believe that we don't we don't have to be in this position right now. But as soon as I get a call, my team's ready to go back to the table and get a deal. We don't want you to be inconvenienced any longer than you have to. Well, let's hope a deal is in the works soon, and it's a win-win for both sides, and everyone uh, can uh, get on with their day. Rob, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity, Rich. I do appreciate it. Rob Cormier, President, Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 1587. Today is day two of the GO Transit Bus Operators Strike. GO Trains are still running. The Up Express from uh, Pearson to Union Station still running, but GO Buses are parked for now. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Police weren't interested in that. As the mayor, I wasn't interested in that. As chair of the police board, I wasn't interested in that. Uh, we were interested in finding a way through this that was sensible, that was practical, but ultimately that that you know opened the road leading to the Ambassador Bridge because it is such a vital uh, economic piece of economic infrastructure, not just for Windsor, Essex County, but for the entire province and, and respectfully for the nation. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of the mayor of Windsor, Drew Dilkins, who yesterday at the Emergencies Act inquiry testified that um, he believed protesters were looking for a brawl in the streets when they were occupying the Ambassador Bridge uh, back in February as part of the so-called Freedom Convoy protests. Another big um, newsworthy or noteworthy element from the Emergencies Act inquiry is that we're not going to hear any testimony from Premier Doug Ford or from former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones after a federal court judge said that they did not have to testify at the inquiry. They can use their or utilize their parliamentary 
privilege. So what is to come and what has been said and where do we go from here? Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, a former national security analyst for CSIS and author of Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Stephanie, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. I would have loved to hear the premier's testimony, but sadly that's not going to happen. Do you think it puts a bit of a stain on the inquiry and what it's trying to achieve? Well, I think they had to show that they were trying, right? Um, you know, I had actually a big debate with my uh, some of my lawyer friends who said, you know, this is never going to happen. You can't compel a sitting MP to testify because of this idea of parliamentary privilege. You know, the, the judge in issuing the decision basically said, you know, it's very clear Doug Ford has a lot to contribute to this and probably should, but we cannot compel him because there is a rule in government that sitting members in a legislature, it's not a rule, it's like a convention, right? But it's like, it's a pretty strict convention that um, for a number of reasons, sitting MPs do not have to testify in civilian courts, that testify in criminal courts, but not civilian courts, um, while they're sitting in the legislature, sorry, sitting in the legislature, because they don't want, uh, you know, MPs constantly being distracted with various cases and courts and things like this, right? Um, they want them to focus on, on their job. Now, I think Doug Ford is kind of probably abusing this <laughs> um, convention, <laughs> because it's very clear that, yeah, he does actually have a lot to offer. He, you know, the the fact is, in our system, right, the first port of call for any emergency is the provincial government. It's not the federal government. So perhaps everyone listening will remember that during the, you know, during the COVID pandemic, when we had the lockdown restrictions, those were provincial, not federal. The Emergencies Act was never enacted at a federal level. It was always the provinces and territories which enacted legislation, because that's, that's the way it should be. And so what we don't know is where, where was Doug Ford during the convoy? Like, why, like, why wasn't the province doing more? Why weren't they using their toolkit? And the province has a very powerful toolkit uh, to, to really kind of put an end to this. And instead we had kind of Doug Ford offering like free fishing weekend. things like this. <laughs> he really didn't seem to want to touch this with a 12 foot foot pole. So where the province was, what were the, you know, factors that were going into its decision-making. Did it feel that, you know, that only the federal government could handle this? Um, these are really important questions that we won't get answers to. Yeah, Mr. Ford was out snowmobiling during uh, the, the Freedom Convoy. We know that. Uh, we also heard from some of the convoy organizers, including Tamara Leach, uh, who recently appeared at the inquiry. Do you think their testimony helped or hurt the federal government's position in enacting the Emergencies Act? Um. <laughs> I think it really depends on the audience you're talking about. I mean, I think anyone who supports the convoy, who's listening to the convoy protesters, were probably thought this was great, that this was, you know, it was very emotional testimony. She was crying. Um, she talked about, you know, her grandmother at one point, how her grandmother was suffering. So I think if you're sympathetic to the convoy, I think, you know, that probably reaffirmed it. But, you know, we did have a week of these guys testifying. I think it, it, the broader picture here is that every, every leader that testified, you know, they were asked, you know, you were told to leave, why didn't you leave? And they kept saying, we weren't told to leave. You know, they kept saying, you know, we, we were given advice from uh, the police, you know, from our lawyers saying we didn't have to leave, or we didn't see the notices, or no one told me we had to go. There's actually one point with Tamara Lick where, you know, the, the police, 
actually show her notes of a meeting they had with her where she started crying after being told she had to leave. But, you know, in their heads, I think they truly believe that they didn't have to go, that they were right, they were justified, and that, um, you know, it didn't really matter, that they could stay as long as they wanted to or as long as they were able to. They didn't, they, they just simply did not want to believe that they had to leave, and so they didn't. So, you know, this was, I think, a, a point that I hope will be taken into consideration, that no matter what the government said to these people, there was no way they were going to leave, right? And I think that's now been established, that if, you know, no, no, that doesn't necessarily justify the Emergencies Act, right? Because you still have all these police powers that could be used to remove these people. But it does make it clear about the mindset that these individuals, no matter what they were told, no matter what signs were put up, no matter what they believed, that they, they just weren't going to go. So, so that that I think was um, a big part of it. If if you know if the week, <laughs> you know, I think we can look at these weeks and themes. Like the week before, when we had Police Week, we learned about how dysfunctional the relationship between the different police departments were, uh, how dysfunctional the Ottawa police was, that they were basically, it was like totally knives out. Uh, the second week was about dysfunction between the organizers, but the only thing that seemed to, they, they seemed to share was that they had a right to be there and they were going to stay there as long as they were able to. It is uh, has been a fascinating inquiry. It's only going to get juicier as uh, the PM is set to appear as well and other senior government officials and, and we'll be watching and listening. Stephanie, really appreciate your time this morning. It was great catching up and we'll talk uh, chat with you down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, also a former national security analyst for CSIS and author of the book. Check it out. Stand on guard, reassessing threats to Canada's national security. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we know that November is Financial Literacy Month here in Canada. We know many Canadians are financially illiterate. They try their best. They mean well, but sometimes they fall into those, well, pitfalls. It's easy to do, especially in these high inflationary times. We have for you a guest that will give you some tips and advice on how to stick handle around those pitfalls. Her name is Allison Howard, and she is the Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Allison, good morning. How are you? Great, thanks. Pleasure to be here. This year's theme is uh, helping Canadians manage their debt. And uh, I'm, I'm sure most, if not all Canadians, right about now, have some debt that they want to take care of. Uh, how, uh, how easy or how difficult is this to do? Well, first off, uh, it's important for people to know that they're not alone in having some challenges or in having some questions and anxiety around how to manage their money. Uh, especially in these times, as you mentioned, with the high interest rates and inflation. It's really a perfect storm if you have some limited financial skills. So there's lots of things out there to help. It's important for people to know that there are lots of free resources and programs and uh, services out there to help them for free. It's easy to get overwhelmed, especially if you are, you know, someone who is not financially literate. Uh, they may know, you know, the basics of, of you know, uh, establishing a budget or how a budget works. Um, where should they start so they don't get overwhelmed? Right. Well, ABC Life Literacy Canada has a program around financial literacy. It's called Money Matters. It's a free introductory financial literacy program designed for adult learners. We do this with sponsorship from TD Bank Group. And there's lots of different topics that are covered there. They're all fairly short um, 
There's the, as I mentioned, the free online resources. There's workbooks, different exercises, activities there. We also do a number of workshops across the country and we get lots of volunteers from the TD Bank group that help us out with those as well. Lots of different topics because depending on where you are in your life, there are different topics, different challenges facing you. And we have lots of different variety. There's uh, spending plans, banking basics, how to borrow money, how to smart shopping and um, ways to save, how to manage your debt, uh, how to calculate a percentage. They start with really basic topics and work up from there, depending on what you need. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Allison Howard, Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. We're talking about Financial Literacy Month in this month, and this year's theme is um, helping Canadians manage their debts. And, and during these times, we have, I'm sure, a lot of debt stress or, or, or debt anxiety. Going through this process of learning more, educating yourself on how you can uh, you know, save some money or tackle your debt, I'm sure will go a long way to reducing that debt anxiety. Yes, it also will help learners to build their confidence to be able to take on the next learning challenge and the next and the next. And there are so many different ways that improving your financial and other areas of literacy can help you in your life and take on different challenges in, in your work, in your community, uh, family life, lots of different benefits for learners. And then confidence is key because, you know, if you're not, if you're like me and you're not very good at math, you know, you can go on to, uh, you know, various different websites and you mentioned, you know, some workshops and, and the Money Matters program to learn basically the basics on how to tackle uh, mounting debt or a credit card or a line of credit. That's right. And you, you have to start somewhere. So this is a, a great starting place. We have lots of different pieces there at abcmoneymatters.ca. And it really does recognize that adult learners face different challenges than children do, say, in returning to education. You've got to balance employment and family responsibilities, uh, maybe coordinating transportation or access if you're going back to a classroom. So visiting our online materials is great because you can do it on your own time. It's confidential, privacy of your own home, and learning at your own pace. It must be a little disappointing to hear that still less than half of Canadians uh, have a budget. For their household uh, for their household budget yes that is very concerning and, and it, we can see too in, in our research that uh, you know four in ten Canadians say that money is a daily concern and a third of low-income Canadians report that they worry about money almost constantly so you can see where the anxiety part is really hand in hand with that uh, the knowledge piece and the skill set. And that's interesting because, you know, the budget is really the foundation of what money's coming in and what money is coming out. And if you don't have that, you're kind of playing catch up or, or really, you know, whack-a-mole. You're trying to guess on, you know, where the money's going. That's right. And, uh, you know, money is a very personal issue. As an adult, we just expect each other to understand how to manage our own money. And it's very difficult to ask for help and admit that you need some help. Well, our listeners can get a lot of help by going online to abcliferacy.ca. It's a great place to start. Allison, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That is Allison Howard, Executive Director, ABC Life Literacy Canada. Again, that website again, abcliferacy.com. Some great uh, tools and tips and advice for you to use to get back on a, a solid financial track. And I know easier said than done, especially with food prices where they are, gas on the way up again, inflation higher, interest rates going up. It is a, it's a tough haul. It's a tough haul. I'm in the same boat. You're in the same boat. We're all in the same boat together. And we love to complain, but uh, taking action is uh, really 
really that first step. So set that budget up together. You know, my household, we kind of have a a virtual budget. We don't write it down. We know what's coming in. We know what's going out. And we have a little bit, just a little bit at the end of each month, which is nice. And uh, then we uh, do what we got to do, whether it's uh, entertaining the kids, going out for uh, a quick bite to eat or whatever the case is, or just, or just saving it and paying down some uh, some other debt. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and... And review.